So we found out, or we found at least in this later presentation, um, an emphasis from the Ahlul Sunnah side on the existence or the notion of the Mahdi, at least in, in a Naql sense. And from the earlier presentation, was not concentrating on that, but from an Aql or an Aqaidi sense. And of course, Sheikh Umar also asked the question uh, about why it has not been discussed under the Aqaid titles from the Ahlul Sunnah books. So on that note, we are going to enter um, the item on the agenda for questions and answers towards both of our eminent scholars. From uh, those who are participating online, as I mentioned to them, please, if you have a question, raise your hand, I will see it here, and then ask you to unmute yourself, and then um, you may ask the question, and it will be answered by our scholars. I'm, we'll have a floating mic going around in just a moment when the questions arise. Um, so I'll ask also people in my presence to raise their hand or to indicate that they want to ask a question to either of our scholars or both of them. Um, to start things off, I think I will ask a question to um, Professor Sachedina, um, first of all, who um, gave the first talk um, and gave a talk with regards to the conception of Al-Mahdi um, rationally and also um, theologically from the Shi'i side. So my question is specifically, or more specifically, with regards to the Shi'i view. How much evidence uh, is there, or is there sufficient evidence? To what extent do we have sufficient evidence in history to identify the person of Al-Mahdi, as was mentioned by Sheikh Umar uh, at the end of his presentation, as Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Askari, that individual? So is there sufficient evidence from the Shi'i side to substantiate that individual as the person of the Mahdi or not? Thank you very much for the question. But I, as a student of history, I must say that um, evidence is relative to the researcher. Researcher, if he or she agrees that this is a reliable source for me to quote and to believe, then it carries the day. If the researcher says, well, you know, this book has been written by the Shi'i, or this book has been written by the Sunni, and I'm not going to weigh in <coughs> what we call the claim of objectivity. So I can say that in my own examination of the sources, mostly historical sources, there is sometimes silence over the birth of the 12th Imam. And we know up to the time of Imam Hassan Askari that there are records that speak about his imama. And also, the records tell us that Abbasids were worried about a child that was going to be born in the Ahlul Bayt family, which, who would be challenging the Abbasid authority and would even get rid of the Abbasids. In other words, there was a fear of revolution coming from one of the children of Fatima to Zahra. So I think there was already a movement to suppress the idea that there was that Hassan al-Askari had, had a, an heir, the Imam, you know, after him. So you have, when I look at the sources, for example, Tabari stops with the ninth Imam. You don't have much, he doesn't say much about 10th, 11th or 12th Imam. But there are others who do say that there, one, there, there was, you know, there was a wife of uh, Hassan al-Askari and she was pregnant and all of these things. So I think what we have is um, not very thorough, you know, evidence that you and I would say as historians in the modern times that we can objectify what we are talking about. I don't think there is objectification you know, possible because it leads us to relative and subjectification of our sources. And regardless of that, by the way, then we have the Shia sources that speak about that. And one of the sources that I need to draw attention to is Sheikh Mufid's division of the several fractions that took place at the death of Imam Hassan Askari. And one of those, you know, um, group that Sheikh Mufid mentions did not believe 
that there was even a child born at that time. So we had already, you know, variety of opinions among the followers of the Imam Hassan Askari that some believed, some did not believe. Thank you. Uh, are there any, yes, Sheikh Ahmed? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I'd like to thank both uh, uh, Professor and uh, Sheikh Omar uh, for their you know, imparting with us um, you know, both these, uh, both their perspectives um, toward uh, this shared issue. Um, I've got two questions, if that's fine. The one uh, from a Shi'i perspective, or probably can apply to both. You know, what what is the nature of this justice? that is to be made prevalent by Imam al-Mahdi al-Sharif. Is it one that is made prevalent by law in a such that if anyone commits injustice, that you know, justice will be you know, executed at that, at that point in time? Or is it as such where Imam al-Mahdi will come and due to his charisma, everyone automatically becomes masoom and justice is made prevalent uh, in that sense due to the you know, charismatic uh, you know, personality. So it would be good to understand exactly what kind of justice may exist from the Shia perspective. Uh, my question to Mawlana Sheikh Omar um, is, for those, I guess, you know, sim could you say that you know, similar to the Shi'i belief, if there is a belief in an Imam, you know, after the death of the Prophet وسلم, that is to make, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, distribute justice, doesn't this kind of uh, entail in uh, uh, Sunni belief, something similar to what the Shi'is believe, that there is going to be a masoom Imam, or he must be masoom to be able to make you know, just uh, decisions and absolute just uh, decisions. Um, this is kind of a question that I would put forward. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry that the, the questions are so loaded that it is very hard to keep it within a certain limit. But I, I think it's, it's good to be short and to the point that I think the justice that we are talking about, the nature of justice that we are talking about is Certainly the rule of law and the rule of law that is based upon divine law, something that God guarantees, which human institutions have not been able to guarantee. So there is a trust in the divine intervention in history. What the idea of Mahdi in Islam teaches us is that human efforts will not produce what God wants to produce for humanity until God intervenes not only directly but through the appointment of certain leaders who will stand out as exemplars and they will be the one to lead the communities of the world to the betterment of the entire society, entire global society. So it's not the generalization of the <clears throat> ideal of being exemplar but rather it is universalization of the value of being fair-minded that is in the mind of the scholars especially our fuqaha they are whenever they are talking about <clears throat> justice they are talking about the rule of law and they're talking about the ideal <clears throat> that god has presented to human beings through the revelation in other words they have always depended upon scriptures, revelations to be the ideal and human reasoning being capable of understanding that scripture. So that's what we are talking about. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, so because the first question was interrelated also to my, my presentation, it, it's 100% right. Humans have endeavored for, for, for thousands of years to make this world into a utopia, which, we, which it, it, it isn't. In fact, Imam Ali's understanding of what the world should be is a utopia. What he was, and that's the reason why I believe he wasn't chosen as a, a political person because his vision and his standards were so high, human beings were not ready at that time to envisage that a world would be so perfect. 
i.e. what he talks about. Hence the reason why a divine intervention, Hazmullah Liqari says that the word that by night, Bilayla, that within one night Allah will set his affairs, it means that the people will accept him. It's a divine intervention, irrespective of NATO, the UN, all the, the world powers that may be against the Muslims or not against the Muslims. I'm not uh, advocating either thing. There will be a divine intervention by Allah Jalla Jalaluhu that will cause the earth to become united. He will rid the earth of this evilness. And this is, is that point. The question you asked me about this, we discussed it within the presentation of Qirtas, so I would say I refer to that. But this is one of the differences we have within Ahlul Sunnah and our Shia brothers. When you say Mahfud, the Imam is you know someone who's Masoom. Uh, within Sufi Islam, we accept that concept. We believe Masoom means Mahfud. But that's not a hujjah in our sharia. That's the difference. We say an imam cannot be hujjah. Like Abu Hanifa is not hujjah for us. A shafi'i is not hujjah. Hujjah are those principles in the sharia like Quran and Sunnah. So we would say, whereas yourselves, you believe the qawl of the imam is a hujjah itself. So we don't actually believe that. We believe that the Prophet left that to a shura uh, point. But a spiritual point I want to uh, mention was what Sayyid Ahmed bin Siddiq al-Humari, which all the great Imam Mawlana Shif al Thanbi Sabarhum dealt with it in very great detail in his book called Kitabe Fadaili al Bayt. He says that the meaning of this of, of this uh, spiritual uh, well-being is that uh, Rasulullah chose Imam Ali as his successor spiritually al-Batniyan because we don't believe spiritualism and the conditions of being the spiritual leader is dependent upon being a political leader. This is something which our Imams have spoken clearly that being a political leader is not, let me repeat that sentence, being the political leader of the Muslims is not dependent upon tafdeel of zaliyat. Anyone can become a leader. However, being the spiritual successor is dependent upon that. So I hope that answers it. Uh, can I come in? Some, uh, something very important for our respected guest and audience. Uh, actually, we've been talking very much about the theological aspects, the mission of Imam Al-Mahdi. What's the more relevant today, and that was the part of the topic, that's the narrations talking about the advent of Imam Mahdi from both sides, because there is some confusion. So that's why from Ahlul Sunnah side, and that's question coming to you, Professor Saab as well, and uh, Sheikh as well. I don't see today many uh, scholars here, including Sheikh Arif Saab as well. But this is very important because from Sunni side, uh, as uh, Sheikh Umar mentioned, there is denial as well. Because of the internal contradictions of the narration and ahadith talking about the advent of Imam al-Mahdi. The this question goes to two as well. Is the same situation? Uh, within uh, Shia circles or not? That's another question. Our respected uh, scholar Mufti Farooq Saab is here as well, and uh, we would like to give him the time as well because his research is quite, you know, monumental and uh, remarkable in this respect. And uh, he is um, uh, would be speaking Urdu because his English is not up to that level. However, he is very good communicator. And uh, so we will be translated, inshallah, into English as well. So this is because that we have to put our stress on the narrations, ahadith as well. You know, so, and uh, there is a denial. So this is the issue related to the modern situation today. If we don't deal with it, then the topic uh, would be incompleted and we never touch the spirit and spatial part, uh, uh, staple part of the, uh, of the subject. Thank you. Uh, just before um, we will move on to uh, Mullah Farooq's in a moment, the, the benefit of having the hybrid um, format of both having people in person here is that even those who have not been able to make it here are still able to benefit and participate. So I have a hand up here, which is, as just mentioned by Dr. Khalid, that Sheikh Arif is not present. However, he's present on uh, online. So if I can invite him to unmute himself and uh, give his input or ask his Precise question, inshallah. If you can hear me, yes. Yes. So, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Thank you very much for your presentations. This question is uh, to, to, to both of our uh, speakers. Um, how much of the idea of Mahdiism is borrowed from previous scriptures, the Abrahamic scriptures, and 
beyond the Abrahamic scriptures. And if it is an idea that is shared amongst different cultures and religions, then does it make any difference as to who the Mahdi is or the particular identity of the Mahdi? Or are we only talking about a savior coming at the end of time and resolving our issues and bringing justice to prevail upon the face of the earth and within the human community? Thank you. Uh, a very, very good question in regards to that. Um, there are some uh, information, and, and this is something our scholars have dwelt in, that some of the narrations regarding Al-Mahdi are or about this idealism that there would be a certain individual that would come towards the end of time that would rid the world of injustice and he would you know, put justice throughout the world and he would remove evilness and so forth. And other religions do actually believe, believe this. The Abrahamic beliefs also adhere to the Jewish some of the Jewish uh, traditions have referred to that. Um, this is something, the this is one of the differences we have. The majority within the Ahlul Sunnah don't believe in individualism. They don't really care who the individual is, i.e. his identity, is he from the Ahlul Bayt or not, but he is an individual that will come towards the end of time. And this is the reason why during the, uh, the Abbasi time, when the Banu uh, Umayyad time, sorry, when uh, the rebellion happened uh, against uh, uh, the Umayyad Caliph, uh, leaders at the time, uh, when uh, Muqtar al-Thaqafi, for example, rose up and, and, and fought against the leaders, he actually said Muhammad bin Hanifiyah was the Mahdi. And the reason for that was a political endeavor, was to give political relevance to this rebelliousness against the governments. That is one reason, maybe possibly, why our early Aqaid books did not put emphasis on the Mahdi in their books. This was the only logical other reason of giving benefit of the doubt to scholars of why scholars did not do this because that rebelliousness would have, uh, or, or, or the, the traditions of Al-Mahdi would have legitimized a rebellion against the leader. Uh, but we do have that within our narration, with our traditions. Uh, but, Wallahu, wa rasulullah, I think. Good. Yeah, very, very briefly uh, to respond to Sheikh Arif, I think what the identity of Mahdi for the Shia tradition was also quite, quite a problem because there were several Imams and their descendants who were regarded as Mahdi at different times. So we have the group of Waqifiyya, for example, who believed that the seventh Imam, Musa Qazim, was the Mahdi. Uh, there were others who believed that the ninth was the Mahdi. In other words, every Imam had some kind of expectation attached by their followers. What we do see, I think, is, especially in Iraq and Iran at that point, not only other religions were intermingling with the Muslims. We have Zoroastrians, for example, who believed in Socians, the coming of Socians. And there were, you know, Jewish people awaiting, there were Parsis awaiting. There were different people, different groups that awaited a leader. Which leader was whose ideas were prevalent at one time or another? We have no record of it. We can speculate. That yes, I think there was a lot of exchange going on. I must say that in the heteroculture of Iraq and Iran at that point, it's quite possible to understand that Abrahamic traditions were talking to one another and were saying things that clicked to them as being a common ground between them. So there is a possibility that there was, uh, you know, that interchange going on. But I, I must emphasize that in the 12 Shiism, the identity of the Mahdi has been limited to the son of Hassan al-Askari. And that's why, you know, later groups who tried to become, to declare Mahdism like the Babism and Baha'ism, were faced with the Ahmadiyya, including, you know, first were faced with a problem of uh, connecting the idea to the person. Assalamu alaikum wa 
तो मैं पेश नहीं कर सकूँगा इसलिए कि बात करना मुश्किल है मेरे लिए बता मैं क्योंकि लंबी बात नहीं कर सकता तो बुनियादी तौर पर चार सवाल जो हैं वो पहले सुनना और शिया दोनों सकालफ के सामने मैं रख रहा हूँ डॉक्टर खालिद साहब से ये गुजारिश है कि आप उनको नोट कर लें और इसकी ट्रांसलेट कर दें हजरात के सामने पहला ये कि शिया रवायात जो हैं उनके अंदर बाद रवायात ऐसी मौजूद हैं कि इमाम हसन अस्करी सलाम का कोई बेटा मौजूद नहीं था उनका कोई बेटा पैदा नहीं हुआ अगर ये रवायात सनत के एतबार से कमज़ोर भी हों तब भी इनसे एक चीज़ ये वाज होती है कि लोगों में ये नज़रिया जो है ये मौजूद रहा है कि ग्यारहवें इमाम की नरीना औलाद नहीं थी तो एक तो इसको ज़रा वाजे करें ये सवाल मेरा शिया स्कॉलर से है और दूसरा सवाल जो है वो भी उन्हीं से है कि इमाम जो है वो गायब क्यों हैं इमामत का ठीक है या तो दूसरा यह कि इमाम गायब क्यों हैं इमामत का जो बुनियादी नज़रिया है वो तो ये है कि इमाम एक लीडर है और उसने उम्मत को गाइड करना है तो इतने लंबे अरसे से इमाम गायब है उम्मत को गाइड कौन करेगा तो उनके गायब होने की वजह क्या है वो क्यों गायब हैं और इसी के साथ ये भी आप ज़रा इसको भी देख लें कि गैबत के ज़माने में इमाम के अहकाम या उनकी बात जो है वो उम्मत तक किस तरह पहुंचती है कौन उसका ज़रिया है क्योंकि मुजतहदीन और फुका तो ये हैसियत नहीं रखते तो इमाम की नयाबत में कौन जो है वो ये काम करता है तीसरा सवाल जो है ये शिया स्कॉलर और स्कॉलर दोनों से है कि क़यामत के करीब इमाम महदी सलाम की आमद पर शिया और सुन्नी दोनों मुतफ़ हैं यहाँ तक इस हद तक इसके बाद दोनों की अहादीस में बौदलमशरक़ैन है बिल्कुल मुख्तलफ है अहल सुन्नत का महदी क़यामत के करीब पैदा होंगे और शिया के इमाम महदी पैदा हो चुके हैं इसका मतलब ये हुआ कि दोनों के महदी बिल्कुल मुख्तलफ हैं तो यहाँ कौल फैसल क्या है उम्मत मुसलिमा के अंदर अक्सरियत अहल सुन्नत की है शिया अक्सरियत नहीं है तो जो अक्सरियत उम्मत का हिस्सा है उनका महदी तो पैदा ही नहीं हुआ और जो उससे कम अदद रखते हैं उनके महदी पैदा हो चुके हैं तो इस दरमियान कौल फैसल क्या है और आखिरी सवाल जो है ये अहल सुन्नत से है कि अहल सुन्नत की इमाम महदी के मतलब जितनी भी रवायात हैं उनमें अक्सर रवायात ज़ीफ़ हैं लिहाजा ज़ीफ़ रवायात के ऊपर कोई नज़रिया क़ायम नहीं किया जा सकता और कोई अकीदा नहीं बनाया जा सकता अब जो सही रवायात हैं इमाम महदी के सिलसिले में वो बेशक सनत के अतबार से सही हों लेकिन उनके मतन में शदीद इजतराब है जो अहल इलम से मख्फी नहीं है तो जो अहादीस मुजतरब हैं क्या आप उनके ऊपर उनकी बुनियाद पर एक अकीदा और नज़रिया कायम कर रहे हैं तो आपके पास दलील क्या है ये चार गुजारिश events and historical narratives have in research been found to be sometimes contradicting one another sometimes supporting one another about the presence of the heir of imam hasan askari similar riwayats are to be found in my opinion Sheikh Mufid who is also 
a very close follower of the historians of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, <coughs> he does mention the differences of opinion among the Shia themselves, whether the Imam had an heir or not. So it was not something that was not known at that point. Even by the Sahaba of Imam Askari, we find the same thing, that they were divided. And it's very interesting to find that it was the aunt of Hassan al-Askari Hakima, uh, who was made to testify in front of the Sahaba of Imam Hassan Askari that she was the one who delivered the baby. Now, all these things are part of what we call contextual dimension of the claim that he was born. Again, in the history, we call it a claim. And we don't have any objective proof one way or the other. Well, we, we, for example, as a historian, I would weigh the riwayat that support and the riwayat that oppose. I might make my judgment one or the other, depending upon who is reporting what. Rijal here are very important. Who is reporting that there wasn't any child? Who was reporting there was a child? So I think ultimately it is a researcher who bears the burden of the proof. Now, if we come to the reason of Ghaiba also, we have from the very beginning confusion about it. People were talking about Ghaiba in terms of a short disappearance of the Imam. The early Shia expected the Imam to come back within the span of 70 years. That there will be revolution and the Abbasid will be thrown. And this is what this child will grow up and will do it. There was known as Ghaibat al-Sohra. It was a shorter occultation. It, was it wasn't supposed to last forever and ever, by the way. From all the riwayat that we have studied, the Shia riwayat themselves are telling us that there was a difference, difference of opinion among the followers of the Imam themselves. It was, it was not something that was presented to the outside world. Within themselves, they knew it, that we cannot make that argument for the shorter or longer occultation of Ghaiba. So Ghaiba was, in a way, realization. This is my interpretation of the Ghaiba. It was a realization that the revolution will not take place now. And there will be a future for that. And it is very interesting that we have one piece of evidence in Sheikh Tusi and others saying that the 12th Imam wrote a note to this Muhammad bin As-Samarri and saying that, look, I will not be available anymore for consultation. Because they were able to reach him. And that's what the sources tell us. So you will then refer to those who teach our ahadiths, our riwayat. This, you will take your questions to the ulama who represent our teachings. Not, they are, not that they are appointed by us, but they are the ones who know about our teachings and you can refer to them and find your way. So this is, by the way, Ghaiba opened the road for the Mushtahid to become the leader of the Shia in the Ghaiba. So it is very interesting to see that in my book on the just ruler in Shia Islam, I trace the development of Khomeini concept from the time of Ghaiba to the present times. So you do find that the ulama become the sort of what we are talking about is Wilayat al-Faqih. Faqih becomes responsible to guide the community because the Imam is not available. When it comes to Ahkam, this is where the Ahkam are now being you know, received. All these years, all the books of the Fiqh for the last 
13 centuries are written by the Shia scholars, starting from those who were believed to be living in the shorter occultation of the 12th Imam, shorter Ghaiba of the Imam, and those who started, you know, their work in the longer Ghaiba. So you have what we call the wilaya of the scholars, of the jurists, available to the community during the Ghaiba. I think there is one hadith that in Ghaiba there were two ni'mah. One ni'mah was the maturity of the Shia followers in the absence of the Imam. How were they going to manage their affairs? What will happen to them? And of course there will be, there will be political dynasties, but they cannot depend upon them. What they want to do is that they want to depend upon their scholars. The second one was their own maturity from always having access to the Imam to not having the Imam. In two ways, the community matured. And today what we find in the community and in the scholarship of the community is amazing. Whether it is in usul al-fiqh, whether it is in the applied fiqh, whether it is in philosophy, it is in kalam, everywhere we find that their works are shining as major landmarks. So what has happened is that I, I think I would, I would say that the identity of the Mahdi is now the identity of correct scholarship. If you have the Hidayah of the Imam available through the source, through the access to the books, access to the personalities, then you have all the ability to map out what the Imam wants. At the moment, we always say, and they say in Iran, Jahan dar intazar ast. The world is waiting for you to come back. In the meantime, we are functioning quite well. So there is a kind of this positive note that you find to be very actively pursued in the absence of the Imam. The Safavids come to power, they use Shiism as the state religion. The Qajar come to powers, they use Shiism as a state religion. But what remains stable and standard is what the scholarship was produced. So you find there's a continuity in Ilm al-Kalam, Ilm al-Hadith, Rijal al-Hadith, Usul al-Fiqh, or there is a kind of continuity. This is what I have discovered, but you're right, we don't have any sources that we can say, yes, this is what happened. No, we really don't know in all humility. We don't know. Jazakum uh, khairan, Mufti Sahab, may Allah grant you Shifai Kamila, inshallah, and make you uh, well again. I don't want to answer the questions that Mufti Sahab also asked me because uh, I think you very eloquently answered them, but specifically the final question, uh, which was a very pertinent question Mufti Sahab asked was that the vast majority of the narrations, riwayat, are weak. And how can we then, uh, I think this is replying to my question about why didn't our Aqaid ulama add uh, the issue of al-Mahdi within Aqaid. Uh, now, uh, again, I would advise you to go to my paper, which I've listed the scholars who specifically list and narrate the narrations which are authentic. Narrations being majority weak does not necessitate that that cannot be amongst Aqaid. So you may have narrations which are majority are weak, but within there we have, according to Sayyid Abdullah bin Siddiq al-Ghumali, this is exactly what he says. He refers to people who deny the coming of al-Mahdi. He says they are ignorant of the hadith and they are ignorant of the signs of the end of time. He then lists 33 Sahaba who narrated authentic mutawatir hadith directly from the Prophet informing us the coming of al-Mahdi. There are narrations which are weak, but I don't, I would humbly, respectfully disagree with that. Based upon that, in my paper, if you go to it, um, the first scholar, Abul Hassan Muhammad bin Hussein al Aburi, a great scholar, in his book on the Fadail of Imam Shafi'i, he says the narrations are wide and spread and are mutawatir. Qadi Shokani, the famous uh, Zahri scholar, in his book, he, he wrote a full book 
Qadi Shokani wrote a full book rebuttaling those people who denied the coming of Al-Mahdi. He said there are 50 transmitted authentic mutawatir hadith of the coming of Al-Mahdi. And not only did he substantiate this, he then narrated all 50 and he proved that the sentence were either authentic uh, and he proved it in, 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 in the expression. Another one from India, Sayyid Muhammad Sadiq Hassan Khan, the great scholar, in his book on the signs of the Day of Judgment, he said it. Sheikh Al-Alama Muhammad Al-Arabi Al-Fazi, a great Moroccan Hadith scholar, he said that there were over 50 narrations which were authentic that explicitly said Al-Mahdi would come. And just to continue, and I will conclude with this as time is uh, limited to final scholars, Muhammad bin Jafar bin Adris al-Kitani, a great hadith master with the Nahrasullah, giant scholar who died at the beginning of the last century. He wrote a book on the hadith Mutawatir. The, 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 the title are the hadith relating to Imam al-Mahdi and other Mutawatir, he's debating it. He says the following, there are numerous hadith relating to al-Mahdi that have reached Mutawatir and it is not allowed to disregard them even though they are weak narrations. So we are not denying that they are not weak narrations. However, to say all the narrations are weak and you cannot base aqeed on that is not something which is substantiated. And finally, uh, the late uh, scholar for our Salafi brothers, a, a great scholar, uh, nevertheless, Sheikh Muhammad Nasruddin Albani, in his Silsila Hadith, he says the following. This is what he said, Sheikh Albani, how far he went. He said it was a fundamental nature it became a yani, you know, solely principle in believing that Al-Mahdi would come. It is a fundamental belief that is belief, that is based upon the Mutawatir and belief in it is obligation al You cannot deny it. The issue here now arises, what is the hukum, the ruling regarding those individuals that deny the coming of Al-Mahdi? Sayyid Abdullah bin Siddiq al-Ghumari said, because those hadith are not fully qat'i, are not 100% conclusive as the Quran, you cannot do takfir on them. But they can be called, this is his word, dal wa mudil. The majority view within Ahl-Sunnah, let me conclude, the majority view is the narrations are authentic, there are narrations which are authentic. There are also a lot of narrations which I did mention, which are weak and very weak. But saying that they are all weak, I wouldn't accept that according to the research of my teachers. And I would say, uh, finally, be forgiven to my beloved Dr. Khalid. Uh, if anybody wants uh, the book itself, the PDF of Sayyid Abdullah bin Siddiq al-Ghumari's book on this subject, I can email it to Sheikh Ali Rida or Sheikh Tajri, and you can get a copy from them, which discusses this in very detail. Jazakar khair. Question mera ye hai, ke jo sahi rivayat hain, un mein aksariyat rivayat ke matan ke andar istirab hai. وہ مضطرب المتن ہیں تو لہذا وہ صحیح سند ہونے کے باوجود بھی وہ اس قابل نہیں ہیں کیا آپ ان سے استناد کر سکے یہ میرا کوئسٹن تھا جزاک اللہ خیر Academic research. But just one right. sentence, Kibla, right. Dr. before you say yeah. If you look at both of the texts written by Sayyid Abdullah and Sayyid Ahmed, they discuss this specific issue. Is there confusion in the text? In their explanation, there is no confusion in it. Some narrations are, there is confusion in it, but there are narrations which are clear cut in its meaning, and hence aqidah can be based upon that, according to their opinion and the opinion of all scholars. But I do accept that there is a minority of scholars that do echo what Qibla Muftisab said, and I, and I, uh, I, uh, I apologize if I misunderstood what Qibla Muftisab said about saying all the narrations are weak. However, what the position, what Sayyid Ahmed bin Siddiq and Sayyid Abdullah clearly mentioned, were the narrations were authentic, not just in the Sanad, but even in the Matan. Wallahu alam. So my question, uh, my question is, uh, humanity needs justice now in their life but this ummah waiting for imam mahdi and disappearing imams they will come and give you 
justice and this justice end of the day, before some years after judgment day. What is the benefit of Imam Mahdi to, to the Ummah? And what is the benefit of this belief in Ummah? They, may, they give us a, a concept that the leader of the Ummah are useless. They depends on Imam Mahdi to come and give them the justice. Compared to the Western societies, they have given justice to their people in their life. But we are waiting for uh, some years before the Day of Judgment. This is very important question from those people outside the uh, circle of the religious leaders. So we need to uh, address this question as well. Thank you very much for that point. I think that uh, we need to step back a little to clarify that we haven't said that the Mahdi will come at the end of the time, you know, and there will be very, it will be late by that time, the Qiyamah will occur. No, I think his Zuhur is going to take place before the final day of judgment. We we now identify Qiyamat al-Sughra or Qiyamat al-Kubra. Sughra is when he will come and he will establish the rule of justice and equity from, from Makkah. And it will be before time, before the end of time, by the way. This is Qiyamat al-Sughra. Then there will be Qiyamat al-Kubra. Again, by the way, all these ahadiths are speculating. We don't know the authenticity of these ideas. But there are something that are mentioned and people like you, even in those days, even today, they're asking, what is the use of having justice when everything is concluded, everything is gone? No, I think we are talking about much earlier period. And I think what the Ummah today, when we talk about al-Hukumat al-Islamiyah today, our mind is moving towards what we call an ideal Islamic justice. And it is, we have tried one of the conferences that took place in Iran, by the way, the whole idea of justice in the Islamic government. And there was a very, very grim, you know, confession that we are far away from the justice. We have not been able to establish it. I think there was this honesty, which was very admirable. That we do we haven't had you know that kind of justice established for us. I'm sorry. And I, I think that there is this realization in the Ummah that we've been claiming a lot about ideal rules. And you know, during the time of Rashid Rida and, and Muhammad Abdu, they were talking about Ummah, you know, the advancement of the Ummah, they were talking about you know, Al-Hukum Al-Islamiyya, all of these things were introduced from 19th and early 20th century, but we still are not able to deliver anything. It doesn't mean that the promise that has been made by the Prophet could be totally wrong. No. He promised that the Mahdi will be among my descendants and you will come and establish the rule of justice as the world is filled with injustice. How it will happen? Allahu Alam. But you and I will all be soldiers who are asked, who will be asked to fight in that army to establish justice. Inshallah, we, we should be able to carry the proper guns and fight, you know, for the justice. <laughs> uh, I would say, Jazakallah Khairan, I think, yes, uh, uh, we have to make a relevance to the, the normal person and this question is arising. So it's, it's often uh, arise that if the Mahdi was born, why is he hid? And, and I think those questions that Mufti Sahib asked are quite pertinent. Uh, but I think some of it, uh, you know, some, some issues that we have in all religion is to do with uh, a divine intervention. It's something which logic you know, doesn't really explain it. Uh, and you can't really use uh, the, the lens of logic to try to put uh, answers to it. There's some things you just believe in it because God says believe in like the Dajjal. How will he come? How will he cause all this destruction? You wouldn't use logic to explain it. You would just accept the narrations 
And I think there's more, uh, but I think this is one of those subjects, apart from what we've debated within Sims, that we, we have more in similarity in this. Uh, but again, I would echo it. Please, anyone that wants to research this, uh, I humbly, uh, I will do more research on this uh, regarding the narrations. I would, uh, I, I can offer you both of the books. One written by Sayyid, uh, Sayyid Abdullah bin Siddiq al-Ghumari, which is 80 pages in Arabic, a very detailed paper, academic paper, rebuttaling those people. And one is 200 pages written by his elder brother, Sayyid Ahmed bin Siddiq al-Ghumari, rebuttaling Ibn Khaldun's opinion regarding the weak narrations and the confusion in the matan. Wallahu alam. Jazakallah khairan. Thank you very much. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. <coughs> Sorry. Jazakumallahu uh, khairan. We are grateful to you all uh, coming here, sacrificing your time and listening to uh, this valuable uh, program and very actually wholeheartedly we are grateful to our both uh, respected speakers for your great and valuable monumental work, research work uh, on this uh, topic and which is uh, on the one side agreed upon, on the other side there are obviously differences and we are here because we selected this topic outside the world, the Muslim world, within Muslim Ummah, uh, a lot of confusions and ikhtilafat, but I must say hatred going on. And uh, the purpose of discussing this topic here on this forum to remove all these confusions, what's the proper position, what are ikhtilafat, what are the differences, and we have to uh, provide the guidance to the Ummah outside. That's the purpose of uh, this forum. And today we have to also welcome Dr. Sheikh Asif Khan as well. He's there, mashallah. He's a lecturer in Birmingham University, one of the leading uh, scholars. And uh, mash, uh, we have to you know, appreciate uh, your sacrificing this time. And also we have to appreciate sacrificing all scholars and uh, uh, leaders uh, who are online, but we, you know, uh, couldn't see them, but uh, that's a great participation and a part of their worship. So this is the, now the conclusion and achievements, which is a very important part of our discussion and this, this, uh, this uh, event. On the one hand, let's first uh, talking about the points agreed upon. So the mission of Imam al-Mahdi, that's from the both side, as you have heard, that's uh, agreed upon. And also as a sign of judgment from the progeny of the Holy Prophet and as Khalifatullah. So uh, from the both side, when you go through the narration, today we were expecting as well from the both our respective scholar to highlight some narrations as well, ahadis. Uh, but still, and uh, you have highlighted the meaning and the spirit of ahadis as well, right? So these are the sides, from these sides, these are the points agreed upon from the both sides. But we are here to discuss the differences as well, without any hesitation, because so long as you cannot or you avoid discussing the differences, you cannot establish the unity. Unity can never be established just hiding the differences, discussing the differences on the basis of the sensible discussion of differences, then there is a unity, proper unity. This is the natural way of unity. Obviously, and we, we have to be honest enough with ourselves. So in this way, the difference uh, coming here regarding the personality of Hazrat Imam Al-Mahdi for example, his name as well, uh, from the both sides, there are differences. And also regarding his life, for example, from Ahli Sunnah's perspective, Imam Al-Mahdi from the same progeny, and he will be appearing, he's not existing at the moment, shall be appearing, but fulfilling the same mission. You know, mission is the same, but it's never born. From Ahlu Shia perspectives, he's the 12th Imam, right? And he is in the state of major occultation and waiting for the appointed time uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
and will be <coughs> appeared at uh, that's designated time with the permission of Almighty God, right? So obviously we have to accept that uh, this difference is a big gap. have to accept it. But I can remember the very good thing, me and Sheikh Arif Saab, I'm not sure if Sheikh Arif Saab is listening to us, right? We were talking about the same topic and the conclusion was quite interesting, right? The conclusion was, <laughs> one was Sunni, the other was Shia, both of us. The conclusion was that if Imam al-Mahdi is coming from Shia perspective either or from Sunni perspective, he would be doing the same job. But we Muslim Ummah, we have to be careful. The first of all, what he will be doing to make all Muslim Ummah murga there. This is from subcontinents. Sabko murga ba. Sabse pehle, ko wo murga. Because Muslim Ummah has deviated from the right track. Right. And you, you ignore your duty, whether they are Sunnis or Shia. First of all, they would be their target, would be followed. So I think in this way, this is the way of reconciliation here, right? Whether it's coming from that perspective or this perspective, but the person is from the same origin, mission is the same, sign the judgment that's the same. And, uh, this is the achievement which we have achieved so far and uh, retaining the differences as well. But always we have to look at the commonalities because the principles of life is looking, depending on the commonalities for living together and dealing with the differences with a dignified way, tolerating each other. This is the principle of humanity and, and usul al-hayat. That's all today. And before I have to, you know, stop, uh, uh, this is the time of Salatul Maghrib, inshallah, we are going to uh, pray together there, first prayer. Then there is a food waiting for you. No one can go, he or she, no one can go without consuming your food, and which is prepared for you, inshallah. Thank you, that's up to Sheikh Tajri now. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulihi Muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan Warzuqna attiba'a Wa arina al-batila batila Warzuqna ijtinaba Allahumma a'inna ala zikrika Wa shukrika wa husni ibadatik Rabbana taqabbal minna Hazihi al-khidma Innaka anta sami'u al-alim Wa tuba alayna ya maulana Innaka anta attawabu rahim سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين جزاكم الله خيرا